We'll be reading these two paragraphs, uh, beginning in verse 21, from God's inspired and holy word. In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. We've been in the Gospel of Luke now for at least these 42 weeks. It's been a while since we were back at the beginning, right? Chapter 1, the the preparations for the birth of Christ. And then chapter 2, that big event that happened just outside of Bethlehem. Most of us remember the birth narrative and the climax of that scene from Luke chapter 2. Verse 14, starting in verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Praise, songs of angelic praise, choirs and anthems of praise at the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of men, the Son of God. Luke has an interest in God being praised. Luke would constantly have God's people share in that joy. I'm so thankful as our service has unfolded today, there's been much calling us to to have joy in the Lord as believers. From those anthems of praise at Bethlehem to this story in chapter 12, to these words about Jesus we see another moment of praise. In today's text, it's Jesus singing God's praise. God, you have revealed things to unworthy sinners and hidden them from stubborn, self-righteous ones. Father, how great are your works. How great are your ways. Jesus exalts In God the Father. We see the joy of Jesus in these words. Perhaps they're not as demonstrative as as you would like. But it says explicitly in that same hour when the 72 had returned and they were debriefing about the mission. The disciples were excited about beating some demons and seeing people converted. Jesus says that's okay. But what else did he say just before this? Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
And in that same hour, Jesus rejoices that God is gathering to himself sinners, reclaiming from lost descendants of Adam and Eve, a people for himself. Jesus is so pleased and praises the Father. The great joy of Jesus is over how God the Father has done this. So that's what we'll look at today. We'll look at the role of Jesus, but we'll also look at the the effectual call of the gospel. How God is opening eyes and bringing people to himself, which has brought such joy to the Savior himself. For such was his gracious will. Let's first look at the great joy of Jesus in a little more detail. Just a couple of points to be made. He gives great praise to God. And I'm, I'm picking that up because of the terms rejoicing that are used in the, in the previous verse as well as here. In the previous verse when Jesus was directing his disciples what to rejoice in the most, there was a common Greek word for rejoicing. So if you're going to get happy, get happy about this. Rejoice in this. And Jesus pointed them to their salvation, their names written in heaven. But now, as Luke, the inspired gospel writer, tells us what Jesus was doing, he says in that same hour, he rejoiced. It looks like the same word in English, but Greek has several words for rejoice. This one is less common. It means exult. Great praise. It's like the guy who gets up on his feet. He can't, but praise God. Exulting. Dale Ralph Davis, who's a a gifted scholar with languages, he said this is ecstatic praise. Woo! Jesus takes joy in the work of God. It's great praise. Great joy. Why am I bringing this up? Is that I think a lot of us forget that things brought great pleasure to Jesus. Yes, he was primarily a man of sorrows. Many times weeping and, and, and bearing with the disciples who were slow to understand. And that's all real and very present. But at particular moments, he was filled with great joy. We ought to always pay attention to the things we're told about Jesus. There's so much to be learned as he rejoices. So what does he rejoice in? He rejoiced in the, in the Holy Spirit, meaning with the help of the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit. It was good and righteous praise driven by the Spirit. So here we actually have the Trinity, Son and Spirit praising the Father What joy is going on there? It's exciting. But his focus is in his words. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That, and he's going to talk about what's at the heart of triggering this praise. And you know what? He is going to talk about God's saving methodology. Kids, there's a $5 word that you can take to school. Um. Try to work it into your school reports. Methodology. It means the, the, the manner of accomplishing something. What methods in the, the specific process. 
Jesus praises God's gracious methodology. Here's what he says in verse 21. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He's talking about God revealing and concealing, hiding and revealing what? The gospel, the message of salvation. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. So we we don't expect anyone really to be able to go to heaven. But God in his grace opens the door and sends the good news and the gospel. And some hear, believe, and obey and belong to the Lord. As Jesus said, reveal these things to little children. In God's methodology, Jesus is kind of referring not just to the two actions, but the two recipients. And he uses language that should trigger our understanding. This isn't the first sermon of Jesus. He's been talking for a while. And we know that he had the hardest words for the self-righteous religious people. And it's, it's possible, I think, to read this, what do we say in modern terms, with air quotes around wise and understanding. They think they know Moses, but they don't know me, Jesus said to them. You may be scholars in the Torah, but you've missed the Messiah. So that's wise in air quotes. That's understanding in air quotes. And to them, God has hidden the good news, as it were. Yet, God has revealed the good news to little children. Hmm, no adults were getting saved? No. Little children is is like code for those who come with childlike faith and belief in Jesus. They hear his message, repent and believe, and they do. They come, they're brought by the Spirit of God. Jesus is excited for God's methodology because in it is a display of grace and God's favor. We do well to remember that no one is worthy of this salvation. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that letter to that kind of dysfunctional church, right off the bat reminding them hey, you didn't become Christians because you're hotshots. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It's parallel language, right? God chose, he continues, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. That's a description of Christians. I don't think we have any millionaires sitting here, billionaires. Anybody been on the cover of a magazine? Just curious. Raise your hand. I, I, I would like to know that. We're not famous. We're not that special. In fact, God gets more glory by picking folks like us. And by doing anything in us or through us, he gets more glory. 
We get surprised in an artist who can sculpt a great sculpture out of marble with all these great tools we now have. But can you imagine someone doing that back in the day where they just had the, the least of tools? God works in us by his power, and we are the least of what the world has to offer from the world's point of view. And yet God would gather us and use us to serve his son and to serve in his kingdom. His methodology. And verse 21 ends with this phrase. Jesus kind of puts the caption underneath this revealing and hiding and this calling work to bring little children to himself. He says, for such was your gracious will. And if you're paying attention, you see in the ESV there's a little footnote and there's an alternate translation uh, that it was, uh, it, for it so pleased you. Because the wording there uh, could go either way. Your gracious will. What does God desire? God desires to do what pleases him. What pleases him? His will pleases him. And so the phraseology just says God does what pleases him. That's his will. And Jesus rejoices at the Father's will. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Petitions, but praises, even in that prayer that Jesus taught us. Jesus' great joy is in what God has done. Well, you know what's interesting? After Jesus points out what has caused him praise, and we'll come back to those verses and unpack the doctrine at work there, but he moves on right away to verse 22 and speaks about himself. He's praising God the Father, but then in the midst of this praise says this, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. In any other mouth, this would be uh, 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 an ego out of control. But this is the Son of God who was sent into the world by the Father who now tells the world that the Father has empowered me. I have unique authority, says Jesus in verse 22. Why does he pause to say this? It's connected It's connected. He praises God for his methodology. How is it that God is revealing salvation to the likes of little children? God's means, the center of God's method, is the person and work of Christ, his son. God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see this? Jesus is praising the Father. And the Father is using the Son. So verse 22, Jesus reminds all who are listening, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is directly connected to the revealing and hiding. How is God working? How is the God who made heaven and earth connecting with its occupants, with his creatures, 
It's through the unique Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we'll see that this morning. No one comes to God apart from Jesus Christ. There's exclusivity there. Jesus knows it. The Father knows it. That's the way it is. To have any hope of heaven, any hope of escaping eternal punishment, you need to come to Christ. Jesus knows that. He embraces that. And and later on, the scriptures tell us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That joy isn't, I'm glad it's over. That joy is watching the work of God the Father saving sinners in him. The joy of the cross. He knew what it would take to bring this all about. The unique authority of Jesus focuses on who he is and what he does. He holds all authority. We we, we can't overread this verse. It's consistent with several other important declarations in the Bible. Let me just give you a heads up this morning, especially if you're taking notes. We've got about a dozen major verses we'll be citing from here to the end of the sermon. A lot of different passages if you want to jot them down or if you want to turn to them. You might not be able to do both, but we're recording the sermon. You can double check who he is. When he says, all things have been handed over to me, doesn't that sound like Matthew 28, verse 18? The opening line of the Great Commission before Jesus departed. He's standing before his disciples. They're commissioned to go into the world. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go. Why does he repeat that? The work of God continues. It came to its climax in the person and work of his son. But this son now has authority to send Christians. Later on, as Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, he's trying to remind them of the greatness and the divinity of Jesus. How perfect he is. And in the midst of that great Uh, praise of Colossians 1 these two verses refer to this authority verse 16 Colossians 1 for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and hold on to your seat and for him in the beginning was the word and the word was with God All things were created by God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Colossians taps into that, and Paul writes to that little church. He says, this is not just a rabbi. This is God the Son, our divine Savior. All things were created through him. And then he tacks on those three words, and for him. And he goes on, verse 17. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. We must never minimalize who Jesus is, what he says. We must take all his commands seriously. We must obey. But then we must also delight and praise him for all he has done for us. The unique authority of Jesus, who he is, what has he done? Jesus has all this authority. What does he do? Well, this verse 22 helps us there as well. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, 
or who the Father is except the Son, and, here's part of what Jesus does, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus came to make the Father known. Pastor, I've heard that. I've read my Bible. It's all over the Bible. Of course we know that. Jesus came to make the Father known. Jesus said, I don't come and speak on my own authority, but on God's authority. I don't come to do my will, but his will. I come to make the Father known. If you meet someone who says they're religious and spiritual, oh, you must know Jesus then. Try that line. What? Well, Jesus is the only one who makes the Father known. Really? Yes! Jesus is at the heart of this plan, this methodology. This is true, so go ahead and use it in your conversations. The world doesn't understand this, but how do we engage? Truth will carry us a long way. If someone says, oh, I'm a person of faith, I'm very spiritual, oh, you must know Jesus. Seize the day. What does Jesus do? He comes to make the Father known. And I think because of that phrase, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, he's thinking very specifically about revelation, making known the truth, the gospel truth. That fits with Jesus' mission. He came to make the Father known. He came to make the gospel known. Often during his ministry, he said, hey, we've got to move on. There are other towns that need to hear the good news. I must preach to them also. He understood his mission and what he was given authority to do. And he passed on that authority to his disciples several times. We just heard about the sending out of the 72. They come back, they're all excited. And Jesus says, that's great, we're doing that. But the greatest excitement should be that your names are written in heaven, that God saves sinners. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 about this great revealing work of Jesus. I hope you're familiar with how the book of Hebrews begins. And I hope you're familiar with the book of Hebrews. If you haven't read Hebrews in a while, I suggest that you take an hour this afternoon. That's all you need, about an hour, to read the book of Hebrews. There is no book in the New Testament which better explains the work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, than Hebrews. Hebrews is a commentary on the Gospels, on the person and work of Jesus. It explains his spiritual offices, the effectiveness of the cross. Why the cross? Why the blood? Hebrews has the answers and much more. Hebrews 1 begins with this. Long ago... And at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Spot on. Verse 3 of Hebrews 1. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, God the Father, having become as much superior to the angels as the name 
he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God's focus is in the person and work of Christ. So we pay attention to the revelations brought by Christ. It's interesting, John's Gospel made it very succinct and clear in John 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. You want to know God. You want to know the supreme being of the entire universe. Know Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Be a disciple of Jesus. And before we move on, Jesus speaks of himself here, not just about his authority or his mission, but to remind us that salvation is only in Jesus. There's the language of exclusivity here. Jesus is the only way. And he says, uh, no one uh, knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's not automatic. But it's only through Jesus that anyone comes to know. There's only one way of salvation. Only the Son makes God the Father known. A couple other scriptures support this very explicitly. For instance, and I think these are two of the best. You can jot them down. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. You can't come to the Father unless you come to Christ. You can't come to Christ unless the Father draws you. And if you are brought to Christ, Christ will raise you up at the last day. Father and Son working to save sinners exclusively. Or as Jesus put it very bluntly in John 14, 6, 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. So let me make it clear for anyone seated here. The way to become right with God isn't becoming religious and being here whenever the church is open. Or buying the biggest Bible. Or praying the longest prayer. Or giving all that you have to the poor. It's in knowing and receiving Jesus. It's hearing Jesus say, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's hearing Jesus say, Repent and believe. Lord, I repent. I believe. I'm not worthy. I turn from my sins, but Lord, save me. Jesus, I come. O Lamb of God, I come. In the midst of this passage, and one reason I picked a a smaller passage is because I also wanted to uh, make it one of our headings in the sermon, the doctrine that is uh, evidenced behind all these words. Um, We don't typically preach long doctrinal series. It's not a seminary classroom where we go through doctrines at length. But as I tell other younger preachers when I'm teaching them about homiletics, when the occasion arises, address the doctrine that appears in the text. And this morning I want to make five points about what we call the effectual call of the gospel. The gospel call. 
hello, call. But there's a different sort of call that's being spoken of here. In verse 21, God was hiding and revealing. That revealing is the effectual call. That's where we're going. It's a theological term, the effectual call. And I've also been thinking of this as I'm considering a a Sunday school topic for this fall, John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which talks about the the dozen key terms in describing salvation and, and which one comes first. Justification is before sanctification, but where does repentance and faith and gospel call? John Murray's little book and that study of theology lays it all out. That might be one of our topics, but you can read the book for yourself. The effectual call. Let's start with the question. Why talk about this? Well, because we see in our text, some have the gospel hidden and others have it revealed. What makes us to differ? Why is it that I am a guest? Why do I belong to God and another does not? Why is it that two people can hear the gospel and only one of them believes and obeys and is saved? Many different ways to answer some of these broad questions, but the one way we want to focus on today is this effectual call. What makes the difference? The answer is an internal Holy Spirit preaching of the gospel or call brings about conversion. You see, there are two calls. One is a general call. You can think of a preacher preaching to a whole crowd. We even saw Jesus preaching to a multitude. They didn't all believe, but they all heard the gospel call. Repent and believe. Everyone in this room, if I even got louder, you'd hear it for sure. Repent and believe the good news. Everyone hears the external general call. We call it the general call of the gospel. The gospel should be preached to every creature under earth, on the earth, under the sky, under the heavens. But not everyone who hears that call in their ears believes So the Bible understands and sees at work in texts like this and some others that we'll visit an internal call. We call it effectual. What does that word mean? It's probably even more fancy a term than methodology. Effectual. It means it it takes effect, certainly. It uh, It is effective. It's not iffy it's not doubtful it will be effective effectual means it will bring about conversion when this call comes it will be answered we see both in one short verse let's take a look at Matthew 22 verse 14 Matthew 22 verse 14 as Jesus has been speaking um about uh, uh, many things. I think he was talking about a parable of the wedding feast. And as he draws to the conclusion of that parable about who's invited and who's not, this is part of the concluding uh, teaching of Jesus. Matthew 22, verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. That verse has both the general call and the effectual call. The general call is the first one. Many are called, repent and believe. Jesus says, but few are chosen. 
What is that referring to? That's referring to the electing love of God, the saving love of God, the effectual love and call summons of God. You, Saul of Tarsus, I want you. You will serve me. Yes, Lord. Saul of Tarsus was called effectually. And there are many places in the Bible that teach what we see here. But this verse helps us to see that there are two calls and one of them brings about the effect. Many are called, but from those who hear the gospel, few, some, not all, are chosen. And the few there doesn't just mean one or two. It simply means not all. You can preach the gospel to 100 and if 99 believe, this verse is still true. We, we learn that in logic when you talk about all or some. Some could be like 99%. So just don't force the language to its extreme, but it is clear there are two calls. To further define effectual calling, there's a wonderful 30-page sermon by Thomas Boston in volume number one of his works, which were just recently republished. Thomas Boston said, effectual calling is the first entrance of a soul into the state of grace, the first step by which God's eternal purpose of love descends into sinners, and we again ascend towards the glory to which we are chosen. Kind of a long, Thomas Boston was a Puritan. Kind of a long definition. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks to this, the preacher from a generation past, effectual calling is the exercise of the power of the Holy Spirit in the soul. It is immediate, it is spiritual, it is supernatural. It brings about the new birth. That's the effectual call where it clicks. And how does it come to me and not the guy sitting next to me? What's the basis of this? Let's point out what the basis is not. The basis is not, I am more worthy or I deserve it more than he does. No, there's no merit in this choice. Paul would later write to those Corinthians. Remember he said, you weren't noble, you weren't wise when God chose you. He has to talk to them again. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this to those who were puffed up. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We're not worthy of these gifts of God. God chooses according to his own will. Read Romans 9. The twins, Jacob and Esau, before they were born, God said, Jacob have I loved. He chose and would call Jacob a son of promise before they were born, before they did anything. The sovereign basis of our choosing, our calling, Paul would write to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9. This is a, a, a key verse for this doctrine. So if you're following along, let's take a look. 2 Timothy 1.9 is talking about God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. There's a connection with election and other things that are going on here. 
but it's clear that our calling is not because of our works, Paul writes to Timothy, but because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gives in Christ Jesus. Again, Christ is at the center of all God's saving work. That's the basis. So what's the means of this calling? How do I get it? Do I get a postcard? Uh, no. Do I, do I get a special? No, no. How does it come? It comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. But let's be careful, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself here, that people aren't effectually called when the preacher is particularly pious or pompously perspective in his preaching and uses alliteration. No, it's not the piety of the preacher or the performance of the preacher or the power of the preacher. Some can be converted by uh, the testimony of a grandchild. I remember, well, I won't use her full name, a woman named Dot. At my previous church when I was young, I, I realized Dot was a nickname if your name is really Dorothy. I didn't realize it until the 90s. Dot would tell her story. I was converted by my granddaughter sharing the gospel with me. A little child. Some are converted by reading a Gideon Bible in a hotel. There's no preacher at all. But where the Spirit of God on the mission of God, doing the will of God, brings the gospel with power to the inner man, not just to the outward ears or to the eyes, to the inner man, there can be this effectual call. We have a description of that. Not a video record, but a written record in the book of Acts. As Paul first arrived in Europe, do you remember that? It's in Acts 16. The first convert, when the gospel came from the Middle East to Europe was a woman named Lydia. And she had the external call and the internal call. Here's how the book of Acts describes it, just verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's the effectual call and the saving grace of God at work. As someone's preaching, God does his work within. It's rare that God does the work within without the proclamation or reading of his word. He uses the general call to bring the effectual call. But you can see the truth of what Matthew recorded Many are called, but few are chosen. It's the Spirit who works. Lydia is a great example of that. One more verse on how God brings this about. Paul wrote to Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that first church where he planted the gospel. They were dear to him. Verses 4 and 5. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, listen to how clear and helpful this is. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 
Paul was excited. He wrote to those people that were truly converted. How did they get converted? Well, the gospel came not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit. God saves sinners by the power of his gospel. And what are the results? Let's just wrap up this point. The results of this effectual call is the creation of the church. The word church is a wonderful word because you can actually trace it through our language all the way back to the Greek. We say church, the Scots say kirk, as in K-I-R-K, kirk. And if you go back to the scriptures, you see the word ekklesia, like a double K, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia. That's the word they used for the church. And what does that word mean? Hang on, this is what it means. The called out ones. Who forms the church? Those whom God has called from the world to himself. We come full circle. The effectual call. When Jesus in Luke 10 is praising God for this work of revealing to some, calling some, he's praising God for creating the church. The called out ones. The church is a band of people rescued from destruction and called into a relationship with God. That's what the church is. We're all, what else do we call rescued ones? Uh, Refugees, or we're all those that have been delivered. You see the the footage of of the rescues being done on Maui and some people saying uh, because the fire came and swept them, they had to flee to the ocean and swim in the ocean to keep from being burned alive. And even then, out in the ocean, surrounded by the smoke and not knowing where the land is, but eventually they're gathered and there's a rescue center and they're huddled with others who were delivered from the great conflagration and they're all huddled there. In one sense, they were called out of the fire. Christian, you are called out of the city of destruction and brought into the flock of Jesus. He knows you by name. You are his. God the Father says you are children in Christ. And Christ goes to heaven to prepare a place for us. The church, the called out ones, are so immensely blessed. Do we see that? It begins with God's sovereign call to repent and believe. As Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, without this work within, no one would ever become a Christian. It is utterly necessary. The gospel effectual call. Well, in closing the sermon, let me just give you two points of exhortation. They both begin with W. One is worship. Worship with joy. Worship the God who so graciously saves. Learn from Jesus. What triggered his joy was seeing God graciously save. And if especially you're the object of that gracious salvation, you should praise God. We shouldn't be like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes because of our guilt and sin. If God calls us out, he sees our sin and he takes care of it and continues to know us, we should 
humbly and thankfully praise him. Many are called, but few are chosen. If you are chosen, give God praise. Give God praise. Exalt. It's what we will be doing in heaven. Revelation is filled with scenes of rejoicing in heaven at what the Lamb of God has done. The second exhortation is this witness to others about this gospel. Jesus said, no one knows who the Father is except those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is still inviting people to know God through his gospel, through his commissioned servants, through us. Go make disciples of all the nations. Go be ambassadors for Christ. You know that phrase, ambassadors for Christ, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll, I'll quote this in closing. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and, hear this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. As a Christian and as a preacher of the gospel of Christ, I appeal to you all. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Turn to him and share his joy. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gospel. And it records so much about Jesus, his parables, his miracles, and precious teachings such as this. As Jesus delighted in you, Father, so do we. We praise you and thank you for who you are and what you've done. And remind us that you've commissioned us to be your ambassadors. May we ourselves be grateful. And may we ourselves go and tell the world. Help us in these things we pray. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Amen.